Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Entrepreneurs in Small Rooms Drinking Coffee. I'm Rob Kennedy, and we're here with Dan of Crowdriff. How's it going? Things are good, Rob. Thanks for having me on the show. No problem. Thanks for coming so early. You bet. This is a nice small room. You were right. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> it's very sterile. <laughs> uh, it's all white. If, if you've never seen it in here, it's very white. And there's a sad face. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so why don't you tell everybody what Crowdriff is all about? So Crowdriff is all about... Uh, allowing marketers to use less words and more imagery in everything they d that they do, and really helping them influence people with visuals and how they make decisions every day. So, what's it like the most obvious use case for it? Would you say like the most obvious use case is like let's say that you are you're trying to decide you know where to go where to go skiing, what kind of ski resort to go to, and. Crowdriff will suck in all of the great content that's being shared by different people at the ski resorts in you know, Colorado and Ontario and Utah and um, out, out in BC. And we allow our customers to curate that content and then surface really authentic images about what's going on at the ski resort, what the snow conditions are like, you know, happy families, happy friends, all that kind of good stuff so that you can make a better decision instead of deciding on sort of one big glossy image that you see on the homepage. Um, so who who are your customers? Who pays you for stuff? We it's it's the marketers. It okay. can be from a social so, media marketer, digital marketer. So like, in that example, it's like uh, I run a what I'm. You would um, run a ski resort. You I would run, run a ski resort. Yeah, yeah. You would run like Telluride Ski Resorts mm -hmm. or Whistler or something like that. Um, we primarily work in the travel and tourism industry. Okay. And it's not an industry I expected to be in yeah. uh, originally. You honestly. think there would be like, there's a lot of money, but then you go into it and you're like, actually, there's no money. And then so it's kind of a weird. <laughs> so so I just want to get the use case right. So the, I'm a yeah. marketer. I'm at, you know, in Whistler. I have a ski resort. I get content from my own uh, sources, but also other people's sources. Yeah. yeah. You, you get content from your own sources. So. Uh, the marketers are able to upload all their photos and videos into Crowdriff, and then we source all of the photos and videos being shared every day on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Okay. And so they can sit down in Crowdriff, and let's say that I'm, um, you know, BC tourism destination, British Columbia. I could type in uh, families hiking during sunset with dog, and get all the photos of that kind of a hike happening. Right. Get hundreds of photos. You know, typically like that's not a search you can just sit down on Instagram and do. But when so it's different than Google Images because you actually source social media as well. Yes, exactly. It's different than Google Images, and you're sourcing it in a way that that's actually you can use, like that's with the, the kind thing, of right. like permissions where you can you can surface it because it's been shared by by that audience. Well, that's the, I don't think people know this, but if the stuff that I mean, Google tries to kind of make a point of saying, "Oh, by the way, this image might be subject to copyright." But yes, if you're trying to use yeah. it for business purposes, you probably have to pay somebody for the the image. You can't just like throw it up on your website. That well, often, I mean, yeah, Google does have this button that says uh, if you want full rights, like if you want full rights to the image, or you want images where um, you have free right to use them, and you click on that, you mostly get images from Wikipedia, right? Like, honestly, or watermark, um, or yeah, <laughs> totally just watermarked so. images. Um, what what people don't realize is is with social media, using a platform like Crowdriff. You can actually push those images, those great photos and videos, up onto your website and digital properties through our product. Because as partners of the social networks, we follow all the display guidelines of how to show them. So you can mm. actually have that great sort of that burger or sushi or you know alpine ski photo up on your site because we're displaying who the original author is, the caption. It's kind of like carving a little window mm. to where it's being publicly shared on social media. But by aggregating that, the audience is able to see 
all that in one place. Actually good builds stuff. a lot of trust. Yeah. So the the way you can get away with that is by attribution. You're not necessarily like the person who's posted, like, who's posted on social media doesn't get compensated in any financial way, but they get the credit for taking the photo as you yeah. would when you post anything in a magazine or whatever. Yeah. Idea. Yeah. And we have ways of getting rights to the images too. But even then, um, right now, we're not set up to to pay the author of the photo. Right. Um, which has been really fascinating because. That's we, like on the have, 500 sort of pixel sort of animal. Yeah. It's more, yeah, it's, of, it's more that side of things yeah. um, with what 500px does. But I mean, what we're able to do is reach out to that author at scale or all the people that are sharing photos. And with our system, the customer can ask for rights to those images oh, either really? with a hashtag response or through an advanced rights engine we set up. It shows them the photos you want rights to, shows them a terms and agreement, and they just click I agree. Um, we've had we've had travelers and, and just general like social media users give rights to 10, 20, 30, 40 photos all at once. And mm -hmm. it really builds up the library. We've had customers get get those kinds of rights to a thousand photos a week um, that they can use in marketing. And do you have like a, a sort of a, a, a bot or something that crawls these networks and sucks things in and asks for permission automatically, or does it how, how does how do you source all that? Because there's a lot of stuff being generated constantly. Do you have to source it, parse it? Yeah. You, well, yeah. You do have to source it. So the way um, the way these things typically are set up, and the way we work with our customers is we sit down and talk to them about what their really what their needs are um, for their brand. So we we create this universe of visual content about their brand. We ask them about what kind of what kind of hashtags and keywords and main themes and locations um, interest them. And then we're able to bring in years of content across the networks and then search that, sorry, index that into our search engine. Okay. So you're constantly sucking stuff in and, and indexing it? Is that Yes, it's it constantly coming in and being indexed. But then the our customer is the one who they get to cherry pick what the best images are for their brand at that time and then ask for rights to those and then use them. And and it's not just on websites, it's been really interesting. Like we we had a Tourism Canada made a great series of videos called Keep Exploring. Mm -hmm. 13 videos can, entirely made out of photos they got rights to through our, uh, our platform. And even Crowdriff made a photo book, a tour, like a tour guide book for Copenhagen. Hmm. Um, we asked for rights to all these photos. We printed them into a great photo book and used that at a conference of everything to see, do, and eat hmm. around the conference venue. And so there's, it's nice to finally see that this kind of authentic content isn't just being used in in the traditional like what marketers thought of as social hubs years ago. It's actually becoming mainstream, like any other great visual hmm. would be. So, uh, taking a step back, this is uh, what's interesting about you guys is you, you didn't start last week. You've been around for a bit of a time. Yes. Uh, I guess how long have you been around for, and what sort of sparked the need for this? Well, we I'd say Crowdriff has been has been growing. Um, in its current iteration for three years. Okay. So probably the last three years, we've gone from five to 35 people. Mm -hmm. um, my journey has been more like five or six years. And it's really since I, since I finished university uh, at, uh, at Waterloo. Um, I'd always been a really deep into data and analytics. I just loved most of my uh, you know, co-op terms and work experience had all been in BI and analytics. Mm -hmm. So I thought I would build a social media analytics company um, so I did, you know, and that Which was kind of like, made sense in 2010, you know. Yeah, it, it, it did. Was kind of new and cool and sexy. It was, and, and Instagram wasn't even around at that time. I looked back Instagram, and I was, yeah. I was realizing, even for myself, it's like you're right. When we, when I really started on this journey, like Instagram wasn't even there. Like this business couldn't have existed in the way it does today. Mm -hmm. um, but when I was building analytics, that, that business was more. And I've tried every kind of business model. I've tried, <laughs> I tried like ten dollars by credit card, you know, paid every month. 
I tried the like two hundred thousand dollars a year enterprise contracts. Um, I really took my, my own path, you could say, to figure this out mm -hmm. over those three years. But um, you know, starting with the analytics, that was a lot of use on Twitter, mm -hmm. and then we did a lot of. Um, at that time, it was a, like second screen was still really big. The idea of watching an event and having the second screen experience, which I think is. I feels like kind of dead now. Um, people aren't actually, their second screen is just Amazon or, or Facebook. It's not really usually related to what they're watching, I feel. So, but we would uh, work with a bunch of events like concert tours, NASCAR, um, rugby leagues, and we would have this live curation algorithm of real-time tweets to surface the best tweet out of the hundreds that are being tweeted every second. And over by retweet standard like you had we a had like wacky the, algorithm we had a, yeah we had an algorithm that was able to score them as they came through the pipe and uh, it would be like this this is on location with a photo it mentions a team player in the maybe in the sport it mentions a, a key term like touchdown um, and that is the one that would be surfaced and so we had different sponsors pay us to um, have this this kind of app or, or display for their event but they were very fleeting like I think working in events is really tough because you you can get you get paid for the event, but it's it has a defined start and end, and then and that's it. Like all the value you created in that moment is kind of kind of gone in a sense. Like you can probably find a smart way to reuse those insights, but but that was challenging. But what we did learn was that the photos were so were so key. That's what everybody like mm -hmm. held on to. Mm -hmm. um, then the the Olympics reached out to us during the uh, the Winter Olympics, Sochi, I think twenty fourteen. Um, and, and uh, they said, hey, we, you know, we are working on this great sponsorship and we want to build this, this social media experience. And so I thought, well, why don't we just take everything that we've learned over these, the couple of years working with all these different sports leagues and, um, and events, like we were working with Calgary Stampede and lots of different stuff, um, and apply that to a whole new experience to deliver the audience. And what if it was just purely images, no more text? Mm -hmm. Um, and that worked extremely well. The Olympics were thrilled. So basically, we, you were um, surfacing social media content that was photo heavy. Yep. Using your magical algorithm. Yes. And when you, when you say surfacing, is it like, did they have a billboard at an event and like a big TV screen and you could see that stuff? Or was it like... No, even that changed too. Okay. Like, yeah, because the... Um, we didn't treat it so much as... We didn't treat it so much as a series of defined events. We treated it like... Like this huge sort of it, well, it is the Olympics. This is huge movement and huge like level of passion globally, and so we created uh, a web and a mobile experience for it where you could log in at any time. You know whether there was an actual medal event going on or not, mm -hmm. you could log in and see what was happening. So you could log into our our system at that time, and or or just view it, not log in, but. Um, you know, a fan could just view this, and they could see the lineups happening at the bars really early in the morning before before the hockey game. They could see the hockey sculpture that somebody made out of snow on the front lawn. They could see the little kid wearing um, wearing a helmet, watching um, you know bobsledding, looking just standing like three feet from the TV, totally mesmerized. Like these kind of moments you don't surface, and also photos that the Olympic athletes themselves were sharing in Sochi cool. from their phones. How, how did you get like how did how did people come to the platform? Was it uh, the was the Olympics were the Olympics themselves marketing the the URL to go to? Is that how they did it? Yeah, they set aside a, an advertising budget to to sort of to drive interest and traffic to and it. They said go here, um, so people would. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So how and and then this is you know, uh, I think implied here, but 
you were sort of bootstrapping this as you were going. Like, did did the Olympics pay you? We yes, the Olympics did pay us. Okay. Um, How do you work out a price for the Olympics? The price in this case had sort of been worked out for us. Um, <laughs> They're like, this is how much money we're going to spend. Take it or leave um, it. Yeah, it, it, and it was enough money that like, uh, I said, I said, great, like we can we can absolutely work with this, right? Because it was from a sponsor, and so it was sort of the sponsor wanted X, they were paying this, and so that money just kind of hmm. moved on to to us as the delivery. Okay, of, okay, okay, of that. So so you're like, okay, this is a budget, like because sometimes people are like, I can do this for five k, right? And you're like. Uh, what? <laughs> right? And then, right. you know, but that, all yeah. the time that's a hard conversation, but in this case it was in not. This, in this case, and that's what made it, yeah, that's what made it move, I think, really quickly. And, and, and like, do you we, think that they committed that amount of money because you'd you'd sort of proven out, like, over time, these, like, you've taken bigger and bigger brands. So when they came to you, it was like, but of course this is $100,000 or whatever the number is, rubles or whatever the Yeah, Yeah, I think, I think that they had, they had seen us work with a lot of different brands. Um, I got to know some of the folks there over um, over a year or two, um, and and it wasn't just it wasn't just here's you know here you go let's do this they like we put together um, we put together a pitch deck um, we put together designs we said like this is what we would build if you were to choose us for this project and but it was based on in our case like so much learning about what was and was not working um, for all these other events were you competing with other people do you think for that budget or. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. Okay, so you yeah, just did what I, you thought was right. Yeah. How yeah. do you know that? Because um, oftentimes that you know, especially with earlier stage companies that are unproven, uh, brands companies will come to you and say, "I don't know what this thing is, man. So how about this? I'll let you use your platform, quote unquote, <laughs> air quotes. I'm doing. You can't see that on a podcast. Uh, on on my event, yeah. and you should be happy that you can expose your my brand to your stuff. How do you like? I'm assuming you got a lot of that. How do you turn that around? Like, do, when when do you say, okay, that's enough? You got to pay me, or did you say you got to pay me right away? Screw you, or um, yeah. Well, I mean, if or you could say like that's uh, if that wasn't the case, like, it would be double this price. That's just assumed. <laughs> but I mean, it's uh, it is it is tough. I did go through that with a lot of large brands we were working with that they thought they thought exposure was going to um, be the really important thing for us, and it's just so. It's so rare that that's the case. So do you, really do you just and, if did those happen and you just say no to those things? You're like, hey, dude, no, it's this is how much it is. I'm sorry. Yeah, we we did often say no. Like I'm, I can't remember I'm trying to recall an experience where, you know, we would certainly um, early on we would give we would certainly give discounts um, to certain brands or for certain levels of exposure, but it was never to a level where we were uncomfortable or doing something, doing something for free. No, like I think. It, and it was also we we had to we had to make money like you said we were bootstrapped at that time um, we didn't have in a way like the luxury I guess of just accepting projects purely on um, maybe what those could do for us we we had to make revenue were they were these through agencies were they direct like the events that you did or even Sochi was that like directly with the... it was directly with the brand which okay. I think helped helped us learn a lot yeah I was gonna say there was there's data involved in that that I think the brand is directly interested in that's surprising um, I'd think that an agency would be the one that you would deal with in these kind of circumstances yes um, and that does happen you know that does still happen pretty often that agencies agencies get involved there are so many different agencies though and it's a um, 
it can be a pretty challenging thing to navigate. Yeah, that's for why a young I was, company. That's why I was yeah, asking. like figuring out where how many lunch and learns is too many for right. an agency before right. you say you got to buy something. Yes, uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so then, okay, so you did the Sochi thing, and that was sort of proof positive that the visuals was the thing. Is that basically what? Yeah, it that did people for you? were. Yeah, just that people were hanging out there for a long period of time, enjoying the photos and coming back. And and were you like, was it how many people were working on this? You and your co-founder at the time, or there was. I think there was four four of us working on it. And were they employees or were they like? They were they were employees. Yeah, so yeah, because we had these different we sort of uh, these different lines of business in a way. Mm-hmm. On on one hand, we were doing this kind of second screen real time curation of content. We were also doing some really some like some big data consulting work. We were working with uh, Fox TV and the shows American American Idol, X Factor, and Glee, mm-hmm. and we were working with Netflix and PayPal. And we were crunching big sets of data. Um, so that was actually keeping the lights on. I was going to say, consulting to uh, pay yeah. for your product. And we were becoming but we were becoming a bit of a data consultancy where there just wasn't enough about these data projects that were lining up where I could see that galvanizing into a scalable product. Oh, interesting. Um, but it was paying. Yeah, it was paying the bills. It was keeping the lights on as we were figuring out that side of things with the Olympics, too. So why, you know, that that's a kind of tenuous moment uh, in the universe, which is well, first of all, actually, was was it who who was a data scientist? Like, who did you have on staff to do the data crunching? Like, we, what was your team? we had a couple good data scientists, okay, um, and we hired one person on contract th- during that time who did some great work. Um, you do some, you look back on this, and you, you realize you did some really interesting stuff, and you ask your team members to do things you never hired them to right. do at first. Yeah. Like we would, just to give one example, we would, um, and f- like Fox TV loved this, but. We, <laughs> We would uh, we would write something we called a pulse report after a TV show would air on primetime, and we had an algorithm that would look at the keywords and the phrases, the most common phrases in all the tweets based on the minutes in the show, huh, and we would surface how the, your audience perceived your show and how they reacted in a pulse report, and they would forward that to all their um, all their VPs and like the distribution list was wild, hmm. but the people who were working on that on my team they were never hired to like watch Glee and and write pulse reports awesome. of, of data. So like, it, please, but not we Glee, oh my God. Yeah, we, but we survived. <laughs> so yeah. how do you, and, okay, so the question I was going to ask was, yeah. you know, at that point, somebody's paying you a paycheck, you've got a consulting company that's working with some pretty big brands. Yeah. You've got a product that seems to be okay, right? Like there's some demand for it, and you're saying that the consulting thing didn't obviously converge into a product. You've got this product that you do believe in that seems to be getting some traction, getting some money for it, which is pretty good. How do you balance the? How do? You, why do you not say? You know, this product is cool, but boy, this consultancy thing is 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 mm. a thing, and it's writing me checks, and I'm paying my pay staff all the time. And yes, I mean, I, I think I'm I'm very much a product person, and so I never intended to scale a ser- like a service related company. Um, that was never really my plan, and it's. I'm I'm just so passionate about building a great product and iterating on that vision, um, and so the the data consultancy side, although I love data and I found the work really interesting, um, it wasn't something that would just compound in value and in my I guess happiness and, and motivation. It's also hard to make money in data over the long term. Like it's not so I shouldn't just say that it's hard. It's, it was because it was um, not something I was interested in, but. Uh, but to run an analytics business is really tough because the analytics you produce have to drive immediate decisions and execution 
Otherwise, you're finished. Like, people have to have a reason to go look at that data on a regular basis. Mm. And they're only going to have a reason if that data is so compelling that it influences the very decisions they make, like, afterward. Right. And I just don't think that the data we were offering was quite at, at a level where it was part of, like, a critical flow of their business. Got it. So then how did you productize? So after Sochi, did you say, okay, this is the vestiges of something. This is a vestigial something. It's worth investing in. You smushed the two pieces <laughs> together, or what did you do? So there was a, um, just really by coincidence, months, months before the Olympics, I'd been invited to speak at a travel and tourism conference. Mm-hmm in El Paso, Texas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where all good businesses start, actually, I've yes. heard. Yeah, absolutely. So it's where Tesla would start. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, so I'm down there in El Paso, Texas. I'm presenting my sort of like real-time social media curated streams to an audience of people I don't yet understand. I don't yet know this industry. Um, they're full of... And what uh, year was this? This would have been sort of 2012 or 2013, okay. like quite a like while ago. Around then, there was a lot of companies doing that too, right? There's a lot yeah. of being like, I have sentiment analysis and all this other crap on social media because there, there was so much of it that nobody knew what to do with it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And so um, I don't think it, at that time, there wasn't really anyone doing it in that space. Hmm. And I, I didn't realize that at the time. I just went down there and presented. <laughs> and, and I didn't know who these destination marketing organizations were or convention and visitors bureaus or... Um, you know, even the attractions we all visit, like museums and aquariums and theme parks, you don't think about what they buy as a business. Or I, I didn't. Um, so I went down there and I spoke on stage. Um, and I think I missed the mark, like I, because I didn't know the audience really well. But what I did is I learned a lot, and I got a bunch of information about the attendees that were there. So here I am doing the Olympics. Um, it's going really well. I knew photos are crushing it, and I look over and I've got this file of all of these travel and tourism folks that I had met a year before. Mm. I thought, well, maybe I should just call some of them and see if this is what they want, like see if this would really work. Mm. I mean, this is a, what better way to to encourage someone to visit, visit your destination, to yeah. go surfing or hiking or kayaking than visually. So, so I did, so I started calling people and our first customer was, um, still, he's still a customer, is Franklin, Josh Collins in Franklin, Tennessee. Cool. And this little, is this... Where's up, Franklin, Tennessee? Franklin, Tennessee is about, an, it's about a 45-minute drive outside of Nashville. Okay. Um, what's at Franklin, Tennessee? What's at? What's there? Like, what's what, there? Is it like... Um, it's this really beautiful, quaint town, mm-hmm. and it's well, it's really, really well-developed now. Like, hmm. um, a lot of really famous musical artists now live there because it's huh. outside of Nashville. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, I mean, even at the time, though, three years ago when I, when I called Josh... It was, I imagine it was very different. But Josh had this vision. He was a great leader and digital marketer. And he said, um, he, he said, yeah, it's like our, it's our audience who should be selling our destination, not us. They should be sharing their experiences. And that's what makes you want to go. Hmm. And, and I was just, at that time, I was like, yeah, like I didn't quite know even what we had here, I think, yet. And, and he really believed in it. So he, saw, I, he, he saw the use for your technology. You had a solution to a problem that you sort of thought you knew, but he's like, no, no, exactly. no, this is the problem you're solving. Yes. Yeah, I think it's interesting if you first, if you really pay attention, your first couple customers could actually remind you the actual problem that you're solving in a way. Right. Or um, tell you specifically in yeah. case you're like, no, it's over here. Like, no, 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 no. And it's good for you. Good on you for listening. So uh, uh, who, I'm just curious, who lives there? Is there anybody that any notable or is it like a lot of think, country artists live uh, out there? Like, or like... I think Justin Timberlake now, really? now lives there. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. He's headlining their their upcoming music festival. 
that's so in, crazy in Franklin, Tennessee. Franklin, yeah. Tennessee. Who knew? <laughs> I know. Uh, uh, that's really cool. So okay, so all of this time you're building the platform, you have a team, you're like now you're finding your niche, and yes. are you as you're doing this, you're starting to say, okay, there's a there there in the travel and tourism space. Um, and what do you just keep? You keep selling. You keep finding more people. You see that there's a niche. You keep kind of rinsing and repeating and improving the product. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, I think I <clears throat> was it just as straightforward as that. It just I like, like the idea of digging into yeah, like really digging into the niche. How do you um, know the? Oftentimes, people go after niches that like seem like there's a lot of money, but there isn't. Like, without knowing the industry very well, I imagine there's countries that like live off of tourism. Like France is like they yes. I think I bet you their primary economy is tourism. So they probably spend a crap ton of money. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people who spend. Oh, um, did you do that kind of research, like the nerdy like analysis <laughs> of the industry? You're like, no, not, there's a here are customers here. Not at not at not at that point. Mm. No, I think that I, you know, I knew it wasn't. It's it's not the it's not the size of a maybe the, like the retail industry or CPG or it's not yeah. one of those headline industries. But you know, travel and tourism. Um, depending on your perspective, can be a really big industry when you start grouping in everything that you that you go to see and do in the world, all the experiences you pay for. And I also knew that like, there's big trends happening now where people are um, they're spending their money less on things and more on experiences. experiences yeah. And like so a... I felt that maybe be, like it can't hurt to be on that upswing. So, you know, uh, before we talked, like before the show, we talked about the fact that at some point you said, like, I think I need investment. Right. And and it's yeah. been what, like the the company, the current version of the company you said has been around for three years, the company itself for six. What and recently you got relatively recently you decided to get investment. How long ago and why? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, when we were when we were bootstrapped and we were selling to the tourism organizations, um, you know, business was pretty good. Like we were we were growing we were growing quickly. Um, we hired our first salesperson, employee number seven. I believe, um, you know, I'm not. When do you hire the first salesperson? Is it like when you're too busy, you're you're doing sales, and you want to? You're like now it's time to compound, grow, or like how do you know that? Yeah, yeah. I think it's if um, if sales like sales isn't what I'm not an expert in sales, um, and I I enjoy talking to customers, but I've always been uh, like, and this starts out even when I first started my first first product and you know beta and everything. I'm fueled off of customer happiness, not necessarily dollars. Right. And I think that I've certainly matured a lot in that perspective. <laughs> luckily for <laughs> uh, your team, over that's time, true, luckily yeah. for my team yeah. and my investors, yeah. and like, um, but what like what would make me really happy was creating a great product that solved a real problem and my customers really happy. So you're a product guy who can sell. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm a product guy who yeah who. Who can who can sell, but I but who could sell better? I think right, like right. and so I I brought on a salesperson who had who had experience in all different facets of sales, who understood how to how to run a pipeline, how to get prospects, how to how to call and negotiate. Um, right. And so so that's our, our head of sales right now, Mark Mazzapelli, and um, and that really helped drive drive the growth. And okay. so so we were continuing continuing to grow. Um, customers would send us checks. That's what they paid us. So I would collect checks in the mail, walk them to the bank. Like yes. this is something you never realize as a as a tech focused engineer. I know. And you're going to the you, you collect the checks and you walk to the bank. Um, but that's yeah. hey, money in the bank, right? I that's know. what's Cash important. Flow. And Woo. you keep you keep growing. Yeah. Um, my co-founder and I eventually sat down and, and we looked at the metrics of our growth and we were we were we were growing at a really healthy rate. And we looked at the market and we looked at um, 
you know, what was going on in the market and thought, you know, I think that if you are in, if, if you're in a space that has, it has competitors, um, then, and there's an existing market, if you don't raise money, you have to be, you have to be extremely smart and, and you have to pivot a ton as you go. You have to learn and react in the, the most intelligent ways to survive. Right. And even then it's, it's kind of risky. Um, and what I mean by that is like, you don't have the cash or the capital to overcome challenges. You have to continuously anticipate and maneuver. Right. Um, we also looked at the business and thought, this is our, it's our first company. You know, we're as, and as kind of at first as scary as it felt to have a real board of directors and, and like make that all really official. Um, it also to me felt really healthy to be accountable to a bunch of other people that we really respect um, to get that kind of advice and input. And then to bring in the capital that would allow us to really make something out of out of this business uh, quickly. So, uh, uh, so it's money, uh, capital for risk to c tolerate the yeah, to ups tolerate and downs. risk. Yeah. Capital for growth so yeah. that you can like move faster and grow quicker. Um, and what was the why five years, not three years, not seven years? Like, what was the inflection point in your mind? Why at that you, moment? Yeah, I think like the company had a profile that made it. A really good profile for investment at that time. And how do you know how much money to raise? We we set out to raise a million dollars, and we ended up raising two million um, towards the end. Um, and given that it was bootstrapped, is this like how what? And you had a, a viable business. What flavor of I, investment is this? Is this like a Series A? Is it like a quote <laughs> called a seed round? We we called it a seed round, although these terms get I know they're all yeah kinda... thrown around. Um, was it was it dilutive capital or was it like uh, yeah it was yeah it was equity okay yeah okay so it wasn't like a which convertible is what, note or which is what I wanted like we yeah. we we'd done um, we'd done convertible notes in the past we'd done a couple small notes you know and over those years we'd done a couple small notes a couple small angels um, you know but the, those amounts of money are like fifty thousand a hundred thousand they're like family and friends to keep payroll is that the idea um, yeah, yeah like essentially um, and that money gets just get spent like it's yeah. not it's not significant exactly, exactly. Um, and so I knew I wanted I wanted a chunk of money that would allow us to um, to make like to really make some investments in our in our people and in our growth um, but I got to experience the full the full spectrum I feel of fundraising because I was really bad at fundraising at first <laughs> right um, and actually Matt Roberts who you had on your show yes. a couple episodes ago uh, he reminded me that we've known each other for five years oh yeah and uh, um, and I just used to meet with him and I think that and that's so important for any entrepreneur is to just find some investors you respect and just meet with them every couple months just to say hi like no, nothing really official just update them on you and the business um well they're really investing in you they right? really yeah really and are. then you yeah. have to decide i think from a like a dating perspective you have to understand is this person do i respect them are they smart are, are, are we aligned are we simpatico from a values perspective because i'm assuming if you're bringing someone on your board you gotta kind of see the universe in the same way if they're gonna yeah. just be like drive the margins down, flip the business. If that's not what you want to do, then you, you're going to have conflict. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then that's how you picked who you wanted to invest in the company? Yeah, yeah, essentially. Like, I I got to know I got to know Matt Roberts and then... Was he an um, investor? Yeah, well, he invested with uh, with BDC. With BDC, was, oh, back in the day, BDC. okay, cool. Yeah, so back when he was at BDC, they stepped forward to... Um, they really stepped forward on the investment first. Hmm. And then Matt lined up a bunch of meetings with other great investors, mm -hmm. which, um, you know, which didn't work out, which I, I I burned, I think, a lot of good opportunities, not being ready, not being ready enough to really oh, do a great, 
to, to know how to do a great pitch and a great fundraising. Because these are people you had not developed a relationship with. You didn't know how right. they wanted to be spoken to, and you had yeah, to and figure I think that Matt, out. Yeah, Matt had gotten to know me. He yeah. knew he knew how I made decisions. He'd seen so yes. much history. That's it's very different when you encounter a, a new investor. So were they so, Canadian investors? Or were they Americans as well? Both Canadian and American. Did you see a difference between the? Uh, were the Americans like um, you know? Yeah, come I mean, on. Dude. Depends. Like you said, the word escape velocity is more in America. Oh yeah. <laughs> Really? Yeah, there's a bit more of like maybe like, the buzz, some of the buzzwords thrown around a little bit. Was but, that uh, bullshit or was that actually like in your mind they actually expected like their, some of their them actually, growth numbers of course, were like they expect it or were they maybe all the same it's more aspirational more... that they okay. want to uh, but but I would meet with a lot of investors and then and I iterated and I've I've um I was fortunate to meet um Mark McLeod. Yeah, um, he's he's on the next episode oh, everybody if you're going to listen. <laughs> he's going to close out the season. That's terrific. That's great yeah. to hear. Yeah, you everybody will love hearing from Mark McLeod. Um and so, you know, through that process, I, I, as basically, I learned how to tell, I learned how to be a better storyteller for our See, company and yeah. for our vision. I learned not to put all the metrics in the deck. Like they say that they want this this deck with all the key metrics. <laughs> yeah. They actually just want a great story um, right. about what you're building. Well, um, especially in the early, I mean, not that you're super early stage, yeah. but it's like it's kind of bullshit, right? You don't have, you have some traction, you have some numbers. Of course, yeah, the numbers speak the, for themselves. That's why I know. understand is like the numbers are here, they're speaking for themselves. But you're in an interesting place because there. like if, if I go and I'm like, I, I've got a business, I've had it for like, you know, six months a year and here's the, look, the dots seem to be trending on an upward and to the right kind of slope. It's There's not enough data to be able to say something, but you are interesting because you've been in business for a while. Forget even the first three years, even the last three years. <laughs> yeah. Or whatever, yeah. you raised money about a year ago, you a said? A year ago, yeah, yeah. Two years of data, it was bringing in revenue. Some people say, some people say, at least it's in the old days, maybe they don't say this anymore, you either raise money when you got nothing. Yes. Or you raise money when you're like because going you, through the atmosphere. Once you have your first dollar, it's never enough. Right. I was yeah. going to say, it's or always, you have escape velocity. Why not $2? Why not $8? Yeah, so people, you're like, how oh. did you deal with that? <laughs> um, well, we were we were fortunate that like the growth, we had did have solid growth. Okay. Um, but then it became telling a story of how do you build a billion dollar company? Um, what is your crazy? What is the crazy wild vision that makes this an enormous company? Yeah, and is that uh, what you ultimately like? Is that what you always wanted, or are you like did you grow to want that, or is that just like the narrative of the universe saying no, 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 it's a software think, company got to be a billion dollars? <laughs> what are you doing? I think I think I grew I think I grew into that even myself. Like I I think that as I as I started to build more, um, you start to you start to look at the world around you and realize the potential of what you have. And my because of I have a bit of a technical background. I tend to think very practically in what's in what's feasible, right? Um, and I think that there has to be a bit of that crazy element in your vision that you you may not know how to connect mm-hmm. all the dots quite yet, but you feel 100% confident you can get there. Uh, how, how do you know that you're not being, you know, uh, bamboozled by? I mean, look, the startup thing, especially these days, everyone's got a startup. Everyone mm-hmm. wants venture capital. You got to make the next billion dollar business, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, how, do yeah. you, how do you say this is one of those or this isn't one of those? Because you've been quite judicious and you're like, this is the product that will scale and this is not the product that will scale. So you've taken right. your time to get here. How do you know that you're not like, ah, I'm going to be a billion dollar business. You're like, how do you know that you're not like drinking the Kool-Aid? Um, I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's because it, it feels tangible to me. I think that once, once I allowed, once your mind goes there, mm-hmm. you can kind of unpack that. I see. And you start to like live in that space. You start to so basically, you're you're almost saying like if that you, you own that vision, yeah, you then start driving to the vision, yeah, and you just yeah, you would just understand it. You just you're living in that vision all the time, um, and yeah, it just make it makes complete sense to you. So are you um, on this like one of the challenges with taking kind of money, especially venture capital, is then you're on this sort of 
venture capital style treadmill where you're like, oh, you know, either you yeah. IPO or you sell or you, you know, raise another round. Are you now you have to worry about that, I'm assuming, or, or have you not set it up that way where that's a, a concern? Yeah, we well, I mean, I'm glad that towards the end of our fundraising, like things things really changed and we ended up having we ended up raising twice what we we expected on good terms and then um, I ended up turning people away at the end which was a total difference from people saying no yeah. to me to me saying no to investors at the end that's why I said I feel like I had a lot of fundraising experience in in that period that's of time weird. so how did you get like you wanted one you got two and why did you turn people away too and not 1.5 and 2.5 like because it, it was most just... entrepreneurs might think especially earlier at stage one mm -hmm. like like maybe you two years ago would be like Person wants to give me another million dollars. I'll take a million dollars. Sure. Um, it was it was it was partly the like the amounts and who the money was coming from. Okay. You know, like we we knew um, we we know that having having Gibraltar and BDC here locally is really terrific, and having High Alpha in Indianapolis and meeting Scott um, meeting Scott Dorsey at uh, at High Alpha was just just terrific, and they're an amazing firm as well. And so once once they were putting in the level of funds to get us up to that to that point. Um, other people wanting to put in 250 or 300, like it just at that point it didn't make enough sense to add more people to the. Pot. So they were like, but, sort of like, the, you're like, okay, I see what you're doing here. Not enough money. Maybe we're not aligned. You see some signaling from other VCs, and that's exactly. Why you're really yeah, here. you can tell people that are you're like, like you're, you're just doing of, it because that person said you were doing it, but like, sure. no, 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 that person's the, the one I want on my team. And usually that's that's the goal, right? That's yeah. what you want to get to, and yeah. that's what I would hope to do again. Um, so but, so. I'm, I'm sorry to say we're almost out of time. We're actually kind of out of time. Um, how, how do you know what to do next? You've, you've got a decent amount of cash in the bank. You've, of the two million, I'm sure you spent 1.75 million. So you have 250. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, you have you, you have a decent amount of capital to yeah. We to have grow a, your and business. we have a really good cash flow business. Like you know, working in this business, customers pay. often pay up front for their what? annual That's licenses. That's crazy. I know they pay up front for their annual licenses, and it allows us to be a very healthy company and really commit to growth. And so, yeah. what does that mean? So, so you're how are you like? And we'll come back to you in a year and see what you did, but uh, to to do the report card thing, sure. we should ever we'll call the episode the report card. I don't know. Um, but in your brain, you've been, you've had the capital for a year. You, you've got some money coming in, so you can pay staff. What are you using the capital for? Is it truly for growth? Are you doubling down on product and hiring more salespeople? Are you? We are hiring. I think the biggest uh, focus, biggest challenge right now is is certainly in hiring and recruiting. Like to do where... what? Hiring to do what? <laughs> It's, I'm not asking for job descriptions. I'm, I'm just saying, every, like everything. Like it, it's why? Why do you need to hire? It's it's everything. Like and I, I, it's not. I'm not avoiding the answer in any way. It's just literally like we're we're doubling the size of our sales team. Um, we're adding a lot of we're adding extra sort of people in, in data smarts to marketing. Um, we're adding a lot more engineering to our product team. Like everything has to move forward. So it's basically about um, scaling the business. Yes, more really, than anything else. The product really is fine. Scale. You're just going to refine it. Yeah, well, we just spent we just spent the last um, we we spent many months um, rebuilding the entire front end interface of our product, which not a lot of companies do it at our young stage. Right. Like you probably use big big platforms like like PayPal and DocuSign that say flip to the old experience, new experience. Yeah, but we're going through that this month. Right. Before we turn off the old experience. And why so now, why invest in that? That yeah. why invest in that switch? Yeah. yeah. Why do that? Well, when you're when you're growing really quickly and you're just taking in customer feedback. At least in our case, like you end up putting features into your product as fast as possible, and then when you step back, you realize a bunch of features kind of get pushed in, and then it 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 really makes sense if you know what you're doing. Mm. But to a new customer, it's it can an be really challenging. Interface, it's kind of yeah. weird. You've, yeah. So we completely rebuilt the interface, and there's been a great response from from customers. 
Um, but that's laid a new foundation for growth. And so now I want to bring in more more engineers and just keep building on that. There's and still a lot of engineering how is work it, to do. I guess the last question I'll ask you before we go is, how, how is it now that you've got professional investors, you have a board? And sure, you have to like sure. it's, it's yes you have product decision I'm sure they don't second guess you in a detailed kind of way but what's that like not having full control and having to report to them or is it onerous is it like yeah, it's fine we've um, it's been really great it's been really healthy yeah um, and it's I, I I'm sure it's it's because of who we chose to be on to be on our board um, you know in the having a board was scary at first we we have a we have a five person board and and at, at the beginning, it felt like a really big board for a small company. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the size of your original company. But yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but what you, what I've realized in our, you know, I think we've had like, you know, in our past many board meetings, is it's just if you surround yourself with those people, it's actually just really helpful, a really healthy environment. And these investors, they work with so many other small companies and startups that they know, like they know what you're going through. They've seen it ten other times. Um, it's just like do this, don't do that, and, the, and they're ready to roll, roll up their sleeves and help. Like that's cool. you'll have an investor call you up and just ask you how you're doing, like because they genuinely just care, right? Um, about about like how how are you doing and how is the business doing, um, and so I think you know obviously everybody everybody knows this, you know, to really really vet your your investors and especially your board members, um, take time getting to know them, um, and that's what we did. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm really sorry to say we're out of time. I told you it goes fast. It does go um, fast. Uh, if people want to check out Crowdriff, where do they go on the internet? Of course, you can check out Crowdriff at crowdriff.com. That's R-I-F-F, like a guitar riff. Right. Cool. <laughs> uh, and if you haven't figured out the etymology of the name, call Dan and he will tell you. Uh, thanks for listening to everybody. Uh, check out crowdriff.com. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Please do rate us on iTunes five stars. It actually really helps the podcast. Write some reviews, uh, especially positive ones. Negative ones, just send me as an email. Uh, thanks very much for tuning in. Uh, stay tuned next week for Mark McLeod, uh, depending on the order you're listening to these shows in. And uh, thanks to TWG for sponsoring us. Thanks to Nikun for producing the show. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.